So this evening I want to uh, go into a little more detail about um, how the judgmental mind is generated, what its roots are, where the judgmental mind comes from, in somewhat more depth than we've looked at before, and then come back again to show the ways that, given that uh, more detailed understanding of the judgmental mind, how we work with and transform the judgments. So ultimately, uh, both a map and then a sense of how practically to work, which will integrate a lot of what we've been uh, doing already and make um, sense of it maybe in a little different context. So first, I wanted to read a uh, dialogue that I had, I think, two or three years ago when we were teaching this retreat. And uh, uh, there was a parallel retreat, uh, much as there is uh, on this retreat. And uh, one of the teachers on that retreat was uh, Ann Cushman, some of you may know, who is uh, a yoga teacher and a Dharma teacher. And Ann's uh, son, uh, Sky, was there who was at the time nine years old. And over lunch, we had an extended discussion about judgments. This is the highlight. (laughs) Sky. We need to have the judgmental police lock up all the judgmental people. (laughs) Uh, Donald. Who polices the judgmental police? (laughs) Sky. Themselves. They lock up the judgmental, judgmental police. (laughs) (laughs) Donald. So they have to be pretty mature. Sky. Yes. That's it. The, the model I want to uh, use to help us have a more detailed sense of uh, where judgments come from, what some of the roots of judgments are, actually comes from probably the most fundamental teaching of the Buddha, very traditional teaching. It's called the teaching of dependent origination, or on the sheet that we have, it's called the uh, conditionality of unknowing. We don't have to look at the handout quite yet, But this is a uh, very basic teaching that is said to have been the core insight on the night of the Buddha's awakening. So a very central teaching, and essentially it's a teaching about the roots of suffering. And by the model, the suggestion is more implicit in the model of how to transform such suffering. And it's a very, very helpful model for understanding how judgments work. And I'm going to say a little bit about that model and then bring in some further ways of understanding it. I'm going to do so in fairly everyday language uh, because I think it's a very simple model. In fact, those of you who've studied Buddhist tradition may be uh, observant of the way 
that the basic teachings are deeply pragmatic and experiential and relatively little uh, dogma or belief system, really. That it's very much grounded in the pragmatics of how one gets at the roots of suffering and transforms them. So it's important just to start by saying uh, just a little bit more about this term that we call suffering. And we've talked about it in the context of uh, compassion practice. And I think it's important to give a somewhat precise, uh, really, definition of suffering and make a distinction between what we might call pain and what we might call suffering. And this is really how I understand the core teaching, which is that to uh, really to... um, uproot the causes of suffering. Now, we can't uproot the causes of pain, but we can uproot the causes of suffering. And pain uh, is the presence of the unpleasant. Whereas, I want to interpret suffering as reactivity, as the inability to be at peace with the present moment. We could call it a kind of resistance to the present moment, which can manifest typically in either pushing away the present moment or grabbing hold of something in the present moment because somehow the present moment isn't enough. And both of those are often done compulsively. I didn't expect to give what is really my favorite teaching on this retreat, but I will now because it it really unpacks the, the meaning of the distinction between pain and suffering. And that's a wonderful teaching, which is called the teaching of the two arrows, sometimes called the uh, teaching of the two darts. And it essentially clarifies the distinction between pain and suffering, which I think is a very, very important distinction for our practice. Because essentially we would say pain occurs sometimes. Pain, the presence of the unpleasant, we might say is a given. And the teaching is... Pain is a given at times, but suffering in the sense of reactivity is an option. That's the essence of it. And so here's this teaching. The Buddha once asked his practitioners, everyone experiences the unpleasant at times. How does a non-practitioner differ from a practitioner in their relationship to the presence of the unpleasant? Essentially, he's going to answer it by saying the practitioner knows about the distinction between pain and suffering and the non-practitioner doesn't really so well. So his his uh, answer went like this. And it was in terms of a metaphor. Everyone is shot as if by an arrow, which is the arrow of pain or the presence of the unpleasant. At times we do have unpleasant experiences. We have unpleasant physical experiences. 
unpleasant experiences in the body. We have unpleasant emotional experiences at times, difficult emotions. We're not treated fairly sometimes. There's sometimes uh, injustice or unfairness. And all of us have these experiences at times, some more than others. But all of us have a certain degree of uh, unpleasant experiences. It's part of being human, that, that that's there. And so the Buddha said, everyone is, as it were, shot by the first arrow. The non-practitioner tends, because of the first arrow being there, as it were, in him or her, tends to shoot a second arrow, we might say, at oneself or at others, as if that would help get rid of the first arrow. And how does that manifest in our, in our ordinary experience? One of the way it manifests, we have a difficult physical experience and we often contract around it. We often tense around it, somehow as if that would help. And this can lead to chronic stress. Some doctors estimate that as much as 80% of what their patients experience as pain is the shooting of the second arrow, not the first arrow. The first arrow might be 20% and the contraction around it might be 80%. And I think we know that, that's fairly familiar. And so it's no coincidence that one of the main applications of mindfulness and meditation, and actually the first application was in the field of working with chronic pain by John Kabat-Zinn and others who later developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, which works really on exactly this insight, the distinction between the first and the second arrow. And we can see that very clearly with emotions. I have a difficult emotional experience. Let's say I have a difficult... uh, discussion with a partner or a coworker. I have, you know, I, I get angry and then I may go into shooting the second arrow through judgments, anger, brooding, being in what Buddhists call a funk. <laughs> Sorry, technical term. And uh, we know how a 10 second interaction we can, as it were, shoot the second arrow in terms of judgment, brooding, and so forth for three hours, for three days, for three years. Right? That's the second arrow. Right? That's the second arrow. We can also see that at the level of uh, I'm not treated fairly, uh, a group, whether this is at the level of a community or a nation or internationally, we receive a certain amount of pain and we want to give pain to those who we think have given us pain. You know, a lot of wars are people shooting second arrows at each other. And so what we are told in this teaching is that we as practitioners can learn to be with the first arrow 
without shooting the second arrow. Which is not easy always. It's to be with what's difficult, essentially without reactivity or learning that better, right? To be with what's difficult physically, emotionally, relationally, and so forth, and to uh, check one's reactivity. And that is really, I think, when we talk about the aim of the practice as overcoming suffering, we're really talking about overcoming reactivity, not uh, getting rid of the unpleasant. So I think it's a little tricky in the language, right? Because we use in English suffering often as synonymous with pain. But I think that distinction is really at the core of the teaching. Um, One version of this I heard when I, I, um, I used to live in Kentucky and I uh, these days go back there about a, once a year and uh, often uh, teach there. And I met uh, a woman named uh, Christy Gabriel who shared uh, a story with me. And this was really a story about that distinction. She said she was, a, uh, she was working at a nursing home and she met a woman in her early 50s who was in the, in the late stages of MS. She had, can, she had had cancer and was also an amputee, right knee down. She had a very large sign on the wall near the end of her bed. The sign read, pain is inevitable, suffering is an option. And so we can keep that teaching in mind uh, throughout really the, the talk. And when we, when we look at the meaning of uprooting what is uh, behind suffering or transforming suffering or overcoming suffering, it's really important to keep that distinction in mind because otherwise it can be confusing. We're not trying to say, let me get rid of pain. And we know that a lot of our practice lets us learn better through various means, mindfulness, the heart practice, and, and so forth, to be with what's difficult at times, to be with what's unpleasant, and learn better to be with that, whether it's physical, emotional, uh, relational, without, without so much reactivity, and to, to track our reactivity. So this teaching is a very interesting one because it purports to give the roots of what leads us to continue to suffer. And it's essentially a model of how out of our ignorance, essentially it's out of our ignorance, we have predispositions to act in certain, basically out of ignorance, we have predispositions to act reactively, to react compulsively, automatically, reactively, and that simply perpetuates the underlying ignorance which was there in the first place. That's the core of the model. It's a model of ignorance leading to habitual tendencies, and then when we encounter certain stimuli, we react, meaning again, we either push away compulsively, and judgment is one way that we do that, or we grab hold of something. That's, that's the essential model. Let me go through that in a little bit of detail, and then I'll come back, and particularly I want to focus on, on ignorance. So, again, it's, it's important to see that, that this teaching, and really the model we work with, 
is one in which the core problem is our own not knowing. It's our own ignorance. It's our own confusion and delusion. And, and this is essentially a hopeful model. <laughs> Meaning that uh, ignorance is not our fate. And that it's actually possible to see our life purpose as learning as coming to see through the places where we're confused, deluded, compulsive, and come to see clearly. That's really the whole model, and it's really a basis for what we're doing on this, on this retreat. So let me go through selectively a few of these links. It's sometimes talked about as having 12 links And this is sometimes called the 12 links of dependent origination. I'm going to go very selectively and briefly through this. So there's first the sense that a root cause, if not the root cause, is a kind of ignorance. And this is a kind of spiritual ignorance. It's not an ignorance of this or that uh, fact. But it's a, a sense that we actually in the traditional model that we don't know the basic nature of things. We, we have a certain degree of confusion about who we are most basically. And the teachings are going to be basically we are brilliant beings of love and wisdom. Something, some version of that. That's it, right? And, and we uh, somehow think that we are small, isolated beings. When the, the truth that we increasingly access is that we are radiant, luminous, wise, loving, um, interdependent beings. And, 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 that's not, uh, and that's actually gets covered over by ignorance. So there's a sense very much that ignorance is not our most basic level, but it actually covers over our, our, our nature. There's a, there's a beautiful passage. Let me see if I can find this in the teachings where, where it, it, it expresses that, that. This, is, this is a passage from the Buddha. Luminous are this heart and mind, brightly shining, but they are colored by the attachments that visit them. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous are this mind and heart, brightly shining and free of the attachments that visit them. This the noble practitioner really understands. For them, there is cultivation of the mind and heart. So it's that sense of this luminosity gets covered by our grasping, by our attachments. And a lot of that is there in relation to, to our judgmental mind. So we have this core ignorance, and I'll unpack it in a little more depth because it's, I think, a very important uh, understanding in terms of seeing where judgments come from. And then on the basis of, those, of that ignorance, there's a tendency, we have certain habitual tendencies. You know, if I have a, uh, let's say, a deep belief that I am not okay, I will tend, I will have a disposition to judge myself. I will have a disposition to put myself down and so forth. And so on the basis of the 
the uh, underlying ignorance, we have certain tendencies, habitual tendencies, inclinations, and so forth. That, that's uh, number two. And then uh, number three through five in the model are really simply the basic ways that human beings function. We have consciousness, we have knowing, we have uh, name and form, which is another word for, for mind and body. We have the senses. So what we really have in one through five is what we bring to experience. What we bring to ex- every experience are the normal human faculties, which include the ability to know, which is very significant, that comes connected with consciousness. And we also bring to every experience a certain amount of ignorance or confusion and, and tendencies, right? Habits. And that's there with every experience that we have. And so some of those are going to lead us, may have us be inclined to be judgmental. Some of our underlying uh, ignorance and uh, tendencies will, will lead us in that direction. Then... Uh, we have uh, six through nine are what happens in present moment experience. And so number six is simply that there is uh, contact. And we could just take that as, you know, technically it means contact with an object, like the eye sees a tree or something like that. But we could say that this is, number six is simply we have experience, you know, we hear something, we see something, something happens in our experience. And then on the basis of that, it's said that there's a feeling tone, a sense of it being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Often we don't track that. You know, uh, but, and we'll actually look into that uh, tomorrow morning. Heather will lead a, a meditation related to, the, which is a very important aspect of our meditation practice, is actually noticing and being able to hang out with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences. It's really totally related to that teaching of the two arrows, that we learn how to hang out and notice the pleasant, or unpleasant, or neutral. And uh, the reason it's there, and, and I think quite so important, is that when we are not aware that we're experiencing something pleasant and we have ignorance, we will tend to grab hold of the pleasant. When we encounter something that's unpleasant, and we have a basis of ignorance, we will react by pushing away. We'll have aversion. A lot of the negative judgments would fit in that category. Something difficult happens in interaction, I automatically react with a judgment. That would fit under that category. And the idea is that when we have a neutral experience, we actually don't pay attention, and we space out. (laughs) So there's either going to be what we would call Greed, grabbing, uh, aversion, pushing away, or delusion when we're not aware of the process. It just happens. Uh, There's a very nice cartoon that shows this. It shows a a very devout meditator who says, today I will live in the moment, unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. Uh, there we are, right? And so uh, then on the basis of that, the, the actual model is focused especially on what we do when there's something pleasant. And it says, 
that we have a kind of craving for what's pleasant, and then we finally grasp for what's pleasant. But it could be either of those. It could be, uh, it could be either the, the craving or the aversion. It could be under eight and nine. You could, if you want to, you can fill that out in your form. That there would also be the um, uh, unpleasant experience leading to uh, the aversion. Someone says something, I don't like it, and I push away, and I can push away with words like a judgment, right? So I could, someone you know, under six says something nasty, I feel, I feel something unpleasant, I have a kind of aversion, and I say something, I say something back judgmentally to that person. Now, this breaks it down into these different steps. Actually, in lived experience, it happens like this. Right, person says something and the reaction occurs. Right, now over time we can actually remember. I was telling my story of how you can, when you study some of your reactions, you can slow them down into slow motion and you can actually distinguish those. But usually it's kind of automatic. And then that's really the uh, on this model. Once we have actually acted in the reactive way, we've grabbed or pushed away with with uh, action, words, etc. Once that happens, we, in a sense, we've continued the cycle. And we, we, have, we have essentially uh, furthered the habit and we're, we are just locked in a repetitive cycle. That's really what the model is saying. That uh, the roots of suffering are in repetitive habitual patterns based on ignorance. And we can see, in a certain sense, uh, judgments in that way. And I, I wanted to give a little more uh, detail to, to talking about uh, the, the category of ignorance. Because I think we can start to see, and part of the trajectory of the retreat is to help us to see some of the deeper roots of judgments. And part of our work is to become these detectives. We work with we find the judgments and we start going more deeply into them. The dropping down practice is one of the tools we use. And we investigate and over time we sometimes find that there are deep underlying, almost unconscious beliefs that are generating many of our judgments. Might be a, uh, might be a belief like, I am not okay. Right. So let me talk uh, about sort of three aspects of ignorance, three ways that ignorance manifests. And each of these are part of the basis for why the judgmental mind occurs. And also, all of this suggests, and I'm going to you know, come back to that in, in a few moments, ways to work with the judgmental mind. That we can actually, but, but having a sense in more detail of this map, I think, can be helpful because it also points to where we're going in the next few days. In the next few days, we'll actually be going into not just working with judgments at the level of noting and seeing them, but also investigating them more. And when I talk about how we practice with judgments, I'll talk in a little more detail about how we use mindfulness and investigation, and a little less about that second major way that we work with judgments, which is to uh, work with the heart practices, work by developing awakened states. But uh, I think we'll be able to see why working with those awakened states are so important. Essentially, they go right at ignorance. When we develop 
loving kindness, when we feel ourselves as kind beings, we go right against a lot of the core models that we may have been carrying around, that I am not okay, that I'm limited and so forth. So as I've been uh, working with people, I've come to see that there are at least three broad categories of ignorance. And the last of them is the one that's really talked about traditionally in this model. And the first two are more contemporary. And essentially those three are first a more personal level of ignorance, which has especially been explored by uh, Western psychology. So a more personal way that we may be ignorant. A second is the uh, social root of ignorance or the social roots of ignorance, how much of our ignorance is conditioned socially and culturally. And the third is a more universal dimension of ignorance. How there's a basic uh, confusion about who we are. And this is, this is expressed in different ways in different spiritual traditions. But I think most traditions have some sense that we don't see ourselves clearly. You know, in Christian tradition, we would say we don't see ourselves as children of God, right? Or we don't. In other traditions, we don't see our, um, our holiness or our divinity or whatever it might be. So the first type, the first type of uh, ignorance is this more personal kind of ignorance. And one way of talking about it is to say that we have virtually all of us, certain kinds of limiting beliefs. And if we, if we, when we go further into judgments, we'll find that many of our chronic judgments, particularly self-judgments, are connected with uh, what we might call limiting beliefs, which are often at an unconscious level. Let me give you some examples of them. And we can often see them more easily in other people than we can in ourselves. Yeah. Um, and so we can notice that we may have a limiting belief which surfaces at times that I am not okay as I am. I am flawed. And that's a very common, you know, we probably all have some version of this. It could be flawed in certain qualities. One of the a very uh, pervasive version of this is that my body is not okay. You know, that I think, I don't know if there have really been surveys, but I believe that no teenager thinks that his or her body is okay. I know that I thought that I had at least three um, major body defects. (laughs) I won't ask you to guess. I thought my feet were too big. I thought my neck was too long. I thought my ears were too big. And you can leave me notes <laughs> after, the, after the talk and tell me they're just fine. You know. so, but I think we all have versions of this, right? We all have versions of this. And being a teenager is a very vulnerable time. And of course, it's, I think it's way, way more difficult for uh, teenage girls than for teenage boys. You know, what I named was you know, 
mildly traumatic, but it wasn't deeply traumatic. You know? and, and so we may have uh, body images like that. And this actually, you can see, it's actually very much an intersection with the social roots the, of ignorance, you know, that a lot of those body images are deeply conditioned by the culture, right? By the magazines, by the sense of you are not actually beautiful unless you look like this particular person in this magazine, something like that, right? And it's, um, that, that's very much socially inculcated and of course different cultures have very different notions of beauty, you know, often very, very different. So we can have a sense, I'm inadequate, I'm flawed. Uh, the, the core belief can be about myself, uh, how I am. Uh, I am not, this, this aspect of my experience is not okay. I can, my emotions are not okay as they are. I cannot express myself. The core beliefs might be about uh, whether I'll be taken care of. I may have a core belief saying, uh, my needs will not be met. Right? Or if I'm really myself, I won't be loved. So I have to be like other people want me to be. And some of this may be resonating, right? Because it's, uh, these are, and so these are at uh, a deep level of our psyches. And as we maybe have done meditative work or psychological work, they start to become more apparent. You know, so other ones might be about the world. Uh, the world is dangerous. I am, you know, I am not safe on my own. Sometimes they might be related to particular occurrences in someone's life. You know, I've met a number of people who think if something bad happens, it's my fault. And it's very, very common. A lot of these come, as you can tell, the flavor of them is very simple. They often come from uh, early childhood. And you know, one like the last one, like if, if something bad happens, it's my fault. You know, that might, a five-year-old, there's a divorce in the family, and the five-year-old is totally going to think often it's my fault and live with that and have that be a basis for meeting the world for the next 40 years. Right? And so we have these kinds of we have these kinds of core belief. Um, you know, when I was giving the example from my own experience of saying, of yes, uh, last time, of talking about uh, being judgmental when someone doesn't, didn't listen to me, I might have a core belief that people don't really understand me or don't listen to me or something like that. There can be a core belief like that. People actually uh, don't listen to me. So you get the flavor of these. These are core beliefs often uh, developed in early childhood and you get a sense of how these can generate judgments. You know, where I might have a core belief, I may have been trained uh, as a child that anger was bad. I may have a core belief anger is bad. And I then, what do I do when I get angry myself? If I'm like, maybe that core belief develops when I'm four, I'm nine years old, I get angry. I judge myself. I see other people, other kids in the schoolyard, they're being angry, I say, bad boy, bad girl, right? And the roots of judgment are there. You know? And then later, I come to a retreat on the judgmental mind, and we do all this work, and we, oh, there's something about anger. 
and there's a sudden, and we, we start doing detective work, and we eventually work our way back to these core beliefs. Right? So does that make some sense? That, there, that we all have some version of that. And part of our deeper work with judgments is to disclose those core beliefs and work through them. And we'll be talking more about how that's done. But that's at quite a deep level. And then there's a second, there's a second dimension that I've already started to talk about, which we could say there are a whole set of often unconscious beliefs which come from the culture, which come from the society. And again, we've all internalized these. And they can be a very powerful, deep source of judgments. Judgments of ourselves, judgments of others. And um, quite interesting that uh, here we can see more clearly how sometimes there are the positive judgments. And so think, for example, one of the main ways that uh, social judgments occur is by um, looking at particular uh, ways that people can be classified or grouped. You know, so we can look at, uh, we look at race, we look at gender, we can look at age, sexual orientation, class, level of education, nationality, religion, uh, appearance, and so forth. And there are cert- certain uh, socially dominant views within each of those categories as to what is good and what is less good, right? And then change over time, you know, but for, uh, you know, some of the ones related to race and gender and sexual orientation, that there have been very long-standing, um, almost like collective judgments, right, that, uh, uh, that people have. And those who are in the groups which are seen in some way as lesser, they tend to internalize a negative judgment, like in the example I gave in the first talk from the Supreme Court decision about the girls with the the African-American girls with the dolls. Uh, And the thing is, we are all, we all are in, as it were, uh, a group that is upper and a group that is lower in the course of our lives, because some of it, we tend to, in this culture at this time, devalue people who are older. And we're all, you know, uh, most likely, <laughs> going to get there, <laughs> right? And there are so all of these. We we none of us is only in the upper or only in the lower. We all experience this. And what the social judgments tend to do is they tend to make a they tend to make me think if I'm in the, one of the upper upper valued groups, I'm better than. This is a, like a positive. We might say a positive judgment. I and mean, if I'm in a lower group. I tend to internalize I'm less than. And that is, that, those are very subtle judgments, right? We may have to do some very focused work to untangle some of that. can be very, very, uh, very, very uh, subtle and hard to find. We can call the kind where we're in the uh, uh, lower group, we sometimes call internalized oppression. And it can be around any of those criteria. And we talk about the One's uh, maybe the other aspect where we're in the upper, we can talk about as internalized privilege, something like that, right? And so a whole other level of judgment, right? Or the roots of judgment, a lot of which are subtle, some of which we don't see so easily. And the third level is the more universal dimension of judgments. Now remember, the whole prognosis is hopeful. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> this is a lot, right? You know, I found myself saying, um, all of this is completely workable, and there's a fair amount of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and so this third level of the roots of ignorance that's particularly identified, I'll, I'll go here with the model that comes from the Buddhist tradition, is that we have core beliefs, particularly about three areas about the nature of things. We tend to have core beliefs in the permanence of things, and we don't see how flowing and impermanent they are, including the permanence of me. Right? We also don't, we tend to have a belief that grasping after things, experiences, people will make me happy rather than cause suffering. And we don't see, and the teaching is, that the, that the deep root of happiness is non-grasping. It is rather having a kind of resting in one's own being without grasping and a kind of freedom, a freedom of, of an awareness that is not reactive, really. That's another way to say it. The freedom of a, a non-reactive being. Again, it doesn't mean we don't make choices, we don't do things or, that, or things, but there is a lessening of the, the tight grip over everything. And so we, the, third, the third of those uh, core beliefs is that there's a separate independent self cut off from others. And it's taken that all of these our underlying core beliefs. And you can see how those could also be generative of the judgmental mind, right? If I'm, if I'm uh, thinking that I'll gain happiness by getting this, which I think is permanent, but it's actually impermanent, and I reach after it, let's say I want something that someone else wants, and I may, I may very easily judge the other person, or if I don't get what I want, I may easily judge myself. And I may really buy into the sense of self, so the self-judgment gets very, very thick. Right? Is that making some sense? I'm being brief here just for the, the purposes of time. And so we have these three kinds of conditioning. And we have, actually have different tools for each of them, different really tools for working with them. And we have, so we have the, the personal level, the social level, and the more universal level of ignorance. Now, how do we practice then? I'll talk um, some about particularly the, this first model of practice. The first model of practice, or the first not model, but the first type of practice, is the kind where we are mindful of judgments, we follow the trail of judgments, we go more deeply, we get access to the core beliefs, we see them, and ultimately we dissolve them and we uh, come to see things much more clearly. We come to uh, see the world in a different way. We, if I've had a sense of, person, you know, I am basically inadequate, we might do different kinds of practices that start to reveal that, start to reveal that pattern, and we can, over time, have more of a sense of my own beauty and integrity. And some of that comes from the second main way we practice, which is uh, connected with the heart practices we sometimes talk about as developing awakened qualities. And you can see 
how those awakened qualities, mindfulness, wisdom, uh, uh, loving kindness, compassion, and so forth, they start, as we've said, start shifting the center of gravity so that I actually uh, experience myself in a different way. And those practices, in a sense, uh, get right at the core beliefs. Interestingly, it's, 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 quite, it's almost paradoxical. You know, there are these two ways of transforming judgments. The first of them, we go directly, we study judgments, we go into them, and we are like detectives and we follow the trail. Ultimately, we disclose the core beliefs and they can get transformed. You know, we can see, see that. That takes a certain amount of uh, continued work with them. And uh, it, it's directly to go into the judgments. And the second way is more indirect. We cultivate these beautiful qualities, and yet those beautiful qualities actually directly, they don't work explicitly with the judgments as they're presenting themselves, but they transform our core beliefs at the level of ignorance. Do you see that? That they're, that, and this is why those practices, even though we're not, when we do loving kindness, we're not even thinking about judgments, but they're getting at these core beliefs and transforming them. And, and that's why sometimes when we do those, when we cultivate those awakened qualities, it's not so much that we defeat the judgments or really see them so clearly. It's just that we, um, we make them uh, irrelevant. Sometimes I call this the front door approach and the back door approach. You know, that, or the direct approach and the indirect approach. You know, and those are the two ways we, we transform. So let me say a little bit more about the first way. Heather will be talking a lot about the second way uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, and talking particularly about heart practices. So let's, let me give an example of, um, let's say, a person, and I'll, I'll actually use something like a case study from someone I've worked with, and how we use particularly this first method as a way of getting, of starting just with the judgments appearing, and then getting at the, um, getting, getting back to the level of ignorance. From the point of view of the model of dependent origination, we really start by observing experience in six through nine. You know, we start with mindfulness. We just start noticing, oh, they're judgments. Wow, look at those. Look at those judgments. There are judgments there. And then we gradually go more deeply and we actually start disclosing habitual tendencies, number, th- uh, number two. And then we actually start accessing core beliefs. So let me give an example of how that occurs. So the uh, first step is we just start noticing that they're judgments, you know, which we don't always notice. There are a lot of people who are judgmental and they don't know they're judgmental. Right? And, and I, I can certainly think that uh, that described my experience uh, up to a certain point you know, in, in my life. And we may have painful experiences, but we not, we're not really so conscious. We're, there's, there's more unconsciousness about judgments, right? And then we start, uh, we start studying them. We start studying the um, variety of judgments. We start noticing, oh, there's judgment. Oh, there's judgment. What did you say? 373? 
And that was a lot of my early practice was really noticing how many judgments there are. And we notice the variety. We notice I, I judge this. We start really um, having an inventory of our judgmental mind. You know, and that's something that if you haven't done that so much now, we hope that the retreat really sparks that. And it's one of the reasons we want to support follow-up work because we really, uh, you know, we're all going to be at a little different stages. But the first stage is just actually being at the level of direct experience and just noticing what's happening. And a lot of times it's saying, oh my God, I'm really judging. You know, oh my God, I'm really reactive. And we start noticing the patterns. Here's, here's a very helpful categorization of different modes of judgment. This is from the uh, uh, Rhymes with Orange cartoon. Some of you may know this. Six, six uh, blocks. First, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to that person. Number two, examine your face closely in the mirror. Notice all flaws. <laughs> Number three, relieve, or re- I'm sorry, not relieve, but relive. <laughs> Relief would be better. Uh, <laughs> relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. It shows a person clenching her fists and saying, stupid, stupid, stupid. (laughs) Number four, make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. (laughs) Number five, disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And the cartoon shows a person saying, "Uh, you look great. And the little cartoon bubble says, don't patronize me. (laughs) And then last, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. So there's a lot of pain there. You know, we were were actually, um, isn't humor helpful with judgments? We have to be a little careful with it because, um, but having us, you know, having some lightness with the judgmental mind really can be helpful, you know, because it, there is a humorous aspect to it when, from a certain perspective. You know. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, here's, here's, here's a judgment. Uh, they're wonderful cartoons. Someone should, someone should have a, a book of cartoons on judgment. Here's one called The Idiot on My Shoulder. And person's at an elevator, and the idiot on the shoulder is saying, try pushing the button a few more times. That might make the elevator move faster. (laughs) Okay. So here's, I'll, I'll, um, I want to finish with this uh, sense of, of how this practice works as we do this investigation. I think we, and we'll look in more detail tomorrow at the second kind of uh, transformation of judgments through the heart practices and developing the awakened qualities. And Heather talked uh, quite a bit about that last night in terms of developing mindfulness, which is an awakened quality, and uh, metta and so forth. And so here's uh, something like a case study. Okay, someone starts off not really knowing that they're judgments. Starts tracking them, starts noticing them. This can take some time. Develops the heart practices to balance. 
you know, and to really help it not be uh, overly difficult or painful. Remember that if this is true, you know, if we, a lot of our work with judgment goes in the direction of understanding uh, these core beliefs, many of which are quite painful, right? Just to see the core belief, I am not adequate, and to go into that territory is painful. There's no way around that. It can be a certain amount of grief when we touch that, a certain, and quite a lot of uh, challenges. And so the heart practices are totally necessary. So person uh, develops the heart practices, but keeps on investigating, keeps on looking at these, uh, at these judgments, starts noticing them, starts exploring them. What's it feel like in the body? Starts to be able to track the major ways that it feels in the body. And, and that permits one often, as, as we've said, to notice the judgments um, uh, more quickly sometimes when, you, when your mindfulness isn't working. Sometimes, like for me, I often notice my hands are clenched, my chest is a bit caved in. I will notice that sometimes before I track the verbal level. Right? And so the bodily, we give so much emphasis to the body and that takes a lot of body awareness to notice. We have to study it and we'll do some practices in which we, we explore the body in more detail. So the person starts becoming very aware of, okay, here's how the judgments are. When I have a self-judgment, my, I will feel my whole nervous system shift in a little way where I become contracted, and it's really a recognizable state. And I can see how that is, and I notice that. And I start noticing, oh, there are certain storylines that, that I go to. One person who I worked with over time, he started to notice that every morning he had the self-judgment, I will mess up today. And it was kind of a depressive thought. And this was a person who was very, is very high functioning in a certain way, but still had that core judgment. And so would uh, start to, to notice that storyline. Oh, I will mess up today. You know, as we did some inner work together, person started to have a sense that, uh, of where this came from, started to get closer to this core belief. You know, because I will mess up today. Well, to actually notice that took a lot of work. To notice that happening took a lot of work. And we could then actually talk, and it was, became pretty clear that this was connected with um, experiences from childhood and could really identify the family constellation and particular members of the family who were giving that message to him. You know, that basically, you are not okay. You are not okay. You will not do well. You know, very um, um, cruel in certain ways, right? Very cruel. And no doubt those patterns were passed on from a previous generation, as so many of these patterns are. And so the person started to work with these, started to notice this. And at this point, it was very important to be doing a lot of heart practices, was doing, this person particularly worked with joy and was in James Barras's Awakening Joy class and worked with joy and started really cultivating joy. And then at a certain point, when the person really knew the patterns well, really knew these patterns, had a sense even of what the core belief was, that it was, there was a sense of, I am not okay. And it could actually sometimes access that and feel that and feel what that was like in the body and mind. 
we would start we started to identify we started to develop some practices where this person could then um, actually when the judgmental thought came we would actually shift the energy this is using the heart practices as antidote that we've talked about from time to time and the per- we we want to do that when sometimes when the judgments are strong and we can't be mindful of them. And sometimes when this person had really inquired into them, there was not really being aversive to the judgment. And at that point, could the judgment would arise in the morning and this person would, with the mindfulness would see it and would go into joy practices and it would shift the energy. And the thought, I will mess up, wasn't there anymore. And we worked with other practices which tended to make it possible to embody. We worked a lot with somatic practices that actually could work with the the embodied sense of okayness. And the embodied sense of presence, tools to work with the judgment and to recognize the storylines when they came. And that permitted a really significant change. It had to be stabilized and integrated. And we've noticed that moments of stress, the old judgments come back. And yet the tools are there. And so what this is really doing, it's it's a way of working with the present moment, present moment experiences, following the judgments to their roots in ignorance. And developing another way of being very much with the heart practices and by cultivating awakened states. And person's life is different. And I think something like that model is one that we can follow, each of us, really. It can take time, it needs a lot of support, it takes practice, it's a lot of work, but it's workable. (laughs) So let me finish just with... uh, Heather will take the baton in some way um, and uh, talk more about the heart practices tomorrow. We'll we'll really complement this. But let me finish just with uh, two readings. Let's see what this is. One of them is about this uprooting of, of ignorance. And the other one is about the importance of the heart practices. Really are two main ways of transforming judgmental mind. And I'll, I'll end with these. And the first is from the Buddha. And this, this actually relates to uh, really uh, actually several of those um, forms of ignorance. So listen to this. And it relates to some of what we covered in terms of the social dimension of ignorance. One who thinks oneself, this is 2,500 plus years ago, one who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior, for that very reason, is engaged in views. But one who is unmoved under these three conditions, for that person, 
the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. In other words, the person's not caught up in being judgmental. Doesn't see the world through I am better than or I am worse than. For one who is free of such views, there are no ties, no constrictions. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after such views, they wander about in the world annoying people. I always like it when you can really recognize the humor in the old, old text. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, the translation says it. <laughs> yeah, those, they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> Isn't that a description of judgmental mind? Yeah. Right. Okay. And then the second is more about the heart practice. This is a poem by uh, Derek Walcott, who's a West Indian poet. It's called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. And say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you, who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own images from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. Thank you for your very kind attention. And thank you for your really, uh, your committed practice. You know, I love these small retreats because we can really be so supported by each other and really can feel how we each are helping each other, you know, at moments when we, our motivation lags or whatever. And so I really uh, appreciate the, the, um, the practice very much of everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.